Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, this morning as we continue in our study of this great book. 1 Peter, chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12 this morning. We'll entitle this message for this part of the text, The Final Analysis. Let's read the Word of God. Peter writes, To sum up, all of you, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father, again, help us. Holy Spirit, accompany your word. It is your word. It's not a man's word. We thank you that you have not only inspired it without error, with all sufficiency and clarity, but you have also preserved it. And so we pray now that as a two-edged sword, you would use it, both to separate the sin that is in our lives and to heal us by its grace. And it's gracious words which point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things so that we as your people might look more like your people and less like ourselves and less like the world around us. And that we would bear more and more not only the image of God in our physical creation, but the image of Christ in our spiritual creation. We pray this all in the name of you, Father, you, Lord Jesus, the Son and Holy Spirit. For your glory. Amen. Like so many things that the Bible does present to us, it presents a paradoxical view of life, doesn't it? The Bible seems to be such an upside down book when we read it and then try to reconcile it with the fallen world in which we live. There are so many things that are counterintuitive. The first shall be last, the greatest shall be the servant, and on and on the Bible goes. But the problem, brothers and sisters, this morning is not that the Bible is upside down, but that the fallen world in which we live is upside down. We're so accustomed to sin. We are so accustomed to selfishness that it seems normal, doesn't it? You don't have to try to be sinful. You don't have to try to be selfish. It just happens. It is so intuitive and so normal and natural. It is the world as we see it being normal. We're so accustomed to sin that we accept that order of life. That's the tragic part. Is that we become accepting of it. And accepting of our naturally depraved and sinful state. To the point that we default to thinking about things like submission, which Peter has been investing in in this portion of his letter. We, we view submission as weak. 
It's questionable. As the losing side of the equation. And something that is generally not desirable for a, quote, successful life. If you want to know how upside down things are, it's not the Word of God that is upside down. It is a view of the world that is upside down because that is exactly what the world teaches us. But the God of Scripture begs to differ with that. Now, I hope that as we read the Word of God, as we hear the Word of God, that it becomes clearer to us that, wait a minute, God differs from our fleshly, natural, fallen state. That is not the way things should be, nor ought they to be. And so it's at this point that Peter comes out swinging. He he steps out into the spotlight and declares these truths before us in verses 8 through 12 this morning. That this in the final analysis is the way of blessing. Not as the world teaches it. Not as it comes natural to our flesh. But as the gospel of Jesus Christ changing us and the Spirit of God empowering us actually makes this the true and living way of blessing. A God-centered, a God-created, a Christ-changed world. You know, brothers and sisters, if we are truly the children of God, if we are blood-bought by Jesus Christ, there is no other way for us to see the, the world. There's no other way for us to see life other than through the lens that Peter presents for us this morning. You can choose to live differently than what the text of Scripture teaches you to live this morning. But that doesn't make it right. You can choose to live however you want and call it whatever you want, but it doesn't make it godly. It doesn't make it acceptable in the eyes of Jesus Christ. We heard a, a statement that I think will probably live on for some time in the American mindset in the last political cycle when in one debate one politician said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you are not entitled to your own facts. You may live however you desire to live, but it does not mean that that is the way God has created you for nor changed you to live as Peter spells it out. So here, Christian, is the final analysis for our life. Here is the reality we are called to live in. And it is the only reality that is a legitimately Christ-bought, gospel-changed reality for us. Let us pay then careful attention to what Peter says. I want you to notice this morning that Peter is closing up the middle section, the, the book of First Peter can divide, be divided into three sections. And Peter is here quickly approaching the end of the second section of this book. And he issues us the instructions we need in order to live as God would have us to live through submission by the power of Christ, by the changing of the Holy Spirit in us. This is what he calls us to, and it is a life of blessing. So, brothers and sisters, let me implore you. Rather than resisting submission as a threat in your life, be blessed by submitting to the Word of God, to the work of the Spirit, to the work of Christ in you in the following way so that you receive a blessing and so that you are a blessing to others. Is that, is that what you want in life? Do you desire to be a blessing? 
Peter says, that's why you were saved. You received a blessing. You were saved to be a blessing. Do you desire to be a blessing? Is that your heart? It ought to be all of our heart. Unless we think this is prosperity gospel, it is not. It's rather Christ bestowed good news. That we have received a blessing and we are called to then give out that blessing. Nor is it legalistic drudgery. It's not, here's a bunch of rules, keep all these rules. No, this is a heart that's changed. This is a life that's changed. So that it wants to see that change perpetuated in others as well. So as we look at the text this morning, I like how D. Edmund Hebert says it. He says, it's like the center of your palm with different fingers splitting off of the same hand that inform the life. It's, it's like a hub on a bicycle with different spokes going out to connect the same wheel. And this is the Christian heart. And so Peter, first of all, gives us instruction for virtue. Instruction for virtue, beginning in verse 8. And he says this, to sum it all up, here, here's what it all boils down to, believers. All of you, every single one of you, not just citizens, not just slaves, employees, not just wives, not just husbands, but all of you, in case I missed anybody, all of you be harmonious. He starts with the first virtue of submissive people. They are known by their harmonious nature. They blend together like a well-orchestrated symphony. If you're like me, I enjoy a good symphony. It's beautiful and it's so intricate how all the different parts and instruments blend together. I love to listen to music and try to hear different instruments and I try to hear the, the harmony line or the melody line that's going on. And, and at the end of the day, it's just blends, isn't it? It's almost hard to distinguish because it's so much participating together towards one goal that it just blends and you really have to work. And this is Peter's instruction. Christian, Christian brother, Christian sister. Are you harmonious? Is your heart, is your desire not to, not to sing the solo or play the solo, but is your desire to be part of a symphony with other Christians? So that together you make music with one another that makes it full and rich and leads to Jesus Christ? Or do you desire to be out by yourself doing your own thing? That's not the Christian life. Peter says you're to be submissive, or not submissive, but harmonious because you are submissive. So that the melody, the lead, that is Jesus Christ and His Gospel, might be heard. By implication, it's not heard if you are not harmonious. By natural deduction, if we are not harmonious, we are not Allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news that He saves. And not only does He save, He changes sinners. That's the real point of the Great Commission. It isn't just evangelism to get people to pray a prayer. What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples. Go and see spirit-wrought transformation through in them. How does this happen when we are harmonious 
together, when we blend together our voices in a unified chorus that says, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And look at this church. We are living proof of that. We're all as different as day and night, but look at what God has done in weaving the different instruments, the different melody and harmony lines together so that Christ is seen. Peter says be harmonious, but what Peter does not say is be uniform. Brothers and sisters, biblical unity is not uniformity. Did you hear what I said? Biblical unity is not uniformity. But rather it's gracious submission, deference to one another, seeking to please the Lord by serving one another. When we live in this way, we are the Spirit-produced answer. Listen, when you live harmonious with one another in this church, and I don't want you to think you know, in some ethereal, hypothetical way of thinking. I want you to think about the people sitting next to you, behind you, up front of you, all across this room. How are you going to live in harmony with them? That's what you're called to do. And when you do, here is the beautiful thing about it. When we live in harmony, we are living out the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus says in John chapter 17, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the disciples right with him, but also for all who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. I want to please Jesus with my life, then live harmoniously with one another. Be kind to one another. Seek to live in unity with one another. Are there differences? Certainly there were differences in Peter's day. There's differences in our day. But we demonstrate the mind and the life of Christ and the work of Christ, not having His own will, not having His own mind, but the mind of His Father as forefront in His thinking. To live with His Father in perfect harmony. One commentator says that the desire to be in harmony is to say that the thought of a schism among us is absolutely unthinkable. The thought of a schism is absolutely unthinkable. Let me give you an illustration. How many of you as parents, thinking about raising your kids, would relish or even tolerate the thought of your children so living in discord with you or with one another that you could not all be together in the same room? Any parents in here think, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. That'd be okay. Yeah, I think that's probably going to happen. That's actually, yeah. As a, as a parent, that breaks your heart, doesn't it? At an earthly level to think, we can't get along. My kids won't get along. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. It ought to be the same in the church of Jesus Christ. I cannot bear to think about a schism with that brother or that sister or of anybody in this room this morning, uh, that they would leave or depart or live at odds with me or with other people. That, that's unthinkable to me. 
There must be a desire to live harmoniously with one another. Now listen, separation has a place, but separation from sin, not separation from preference. Not separation from, well, they're a little different than I am. Not separation from, well, they, they, they just see that a little differently. It's not a sin issue. It's just that Peter says you've got to dwell in harmony together. A transformed life is what I'm talking about. Brothers and sisters, if, if at the first sign of disagreement, the first sign of difference, our heart is to separate and isolate from that person, we do not have the mind of Christ. Oh, difference. Done with them. Isolate from them. I don't like what, what they believe or said or did in this situation. Nope. My first reaction is just wall it off. That's not the mind of Christ. It's certainly not the mind that Peter is calling these Christians to. Are there going to be disagreements? Yes. Are there going to be differences? Yes. But remember, unity is not uniformity. It's love in Christ. Now, where there are sin issues, obviously those have to be dealt with. But outside of sin issues, we're to live harmoniously with each other, kind towards each other. Tolerance is not celebrating homogeny in the body. In other words, we're all the same. We're all alike. Boy, we're just in lockstep. That's not what tolerance is. And I don't mean tolerance in the way the world says tolerance. I mean tolerance is that I can live with that. Yeah. Boy, what? I mean, you guys probably go home and look at me and say, what a joker. But I can live with Brian. It's tolerable. Yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can get over that quirk, whatever. Christian tolerance celebrates the gift that each person is to the body of Christ. Such that the word in the Greek literally means not being able to imagine life without them. They are a vital part of the symphony. I like brass instruments. You like stringed instruments. Some of you like woodwind instruments. Some of you like percussion instruments. But you know, it's not a symphony. It doesn't have the same beauty. It doesn't have the same exalted sense of everything working together towards a common goal. But if the woodwind and the brass and the percussion and the strings at the first sign of hearing something different than what they play vacate the building, then you'll never have the fullness of the body. Brother and sister, Peter says, listen, here's the final analysis. Live harmoniously. It requires a gospel-changed heart to do that because we are all sinners. Christ has to change us. Sinners do not live harmoniously. So where we find ourselves unwilling to do so, we need to check our hearts. What's there? Why would I not allow this? Why would I feel this way towards my brother or sister? Peter continues on. He says, be sympathetic. Moving from primary now down the list, the foundation really is the heart to be harmonious. 
He says, then be sympathetic. Listen, are harmonious people are sympathetic people. It's not contrived. It's not fake. It's not. It's the fruit of harmonious living that we literally, the word literally means to feel the same as someone else. To join them in their feelings. When we are tied, brothers and sisters, by harmony to one another, living for Christ and living for them, we naturally participate in sympathy and eagerness to join them in their feelings, regardless of what those feelings are. Listen, right now in our church, we have people who are weeping. We have people who are hurting. We have people who are anxious. We have people who are scared. We have people who are going through trials. Is your desire for them to weep with them, to labor with them, to care for them like it was you in the trial? We also have people who are celebrating. Various milestones in their life and things are going well for them. And we want to rejoice with them at the same time that we weep with others. Paul says, in Romans twelve fifteen, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what a harmonious person does. You put yourself in the position of others and you join them there. Just as Josh read from Galatians chapter 6, brothers, if a man is overtaken in a fault or in a sin, you who are spiritual, the, the word picture is literally getting underneath the weight with them and lifting it with them. It's like a spotter in the weight room. At the point that it's unbearable, you are there, you are underneath, you are cheering, you are pushing, you are lifting with them. Peter says, be sympathetic. Be of one mind, such that your feelings are engaged with them. God, brothers and sisters, whether you realize this or not, God is always preparing us to do this as a body of believers. We're always going to have a dynamic of some hurting and some rejoicing, and everything in between. There are going to be people who are God is preparing to go into a trial. There are going to be people who are in the trial, and there are going to be people coming out of the trial that God has strengthened through rejoicing, preparing them to go back into a trial. It's a cycle that will not end until we're in heaven. And Peter says, you need to have such harmonious love for one another that you can place yourself with those who weep. With those who rejoice. Let me tell you something. The world does not have the ability to do that. The world completely lacks that ability to weep and to rejoice with one another. I was listening to Robert Godfrey yesterday as he closed out the Ligonier National Conference this week. He gave the example of a living there in Southern California and having some close friends whose grandchild was killed in a car accident. And he said that when the highway patrolman and the policeman came to visit them the next day who had conducted the investigation and overseen the accident, he came to visit the family. 
And his first response was, you must be Christians. And they said, yes, we are. How did you know? He said, because there are so many people going in and out of your house. He said, I always know when I go to a Christian's home after a tragedy. He said, because they're always together. They're serving. He said, you wouldn't believe how many homes I go to and they mourn alone. See, that's Christian sympathy. It it extends to the point that even when our enemies fall, we feel something of a sympathetic response for them. The book of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 24, verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Excuse me? My enemy falls? Yeah, you see, Christians don't rejoice in the downfall of anyone. We have a sympathy for those in our lives whom God has placed there. And do not, he goes on to say, let your heart be glad when he stumbles. That means when our political opponents are unmasked and they fall because of a moral failure, we don't laugh at that and say, ha! We mourn. We weep. We don't say, well, you deserve what you got. You had it coming. It's not a Christian response. A Christian response is a sympathetic response, but particularly to those who are also of the household of the faith, as we read earlier. Be harmonious. In harmonious living, there is sympathy, and in being sympathetic, there is also a brotherly response. This is the same word from which we get our word brotherly love. The Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. One need only look at the world around to see how impossible that is. How many families are split apart, unbelieving families, and there's no reconciliation? It's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. But that's not the natural way God created it, is it, in in an earthly family. God did not intend for, nor are we wired to say, I hate my brother. It's not the way it should be. There ought to be a, a brotherliness to it. It's the mark of regeneration. How do you know you've been born again? Good question. Fair question. How do I know if I'm born again? John's helpful. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Do you love one another? Do you have a, a, a care for one another? Do, do, do you... Actually love other people in this room and all people in this room. Then you know you've passed from death to life. The world doesn't do that. It's the ID badge of the believer. It ought to be what if we had an admission standard into the church. Like you actually had to show your badge to get in on a Sunday morning. It ought to be this. He loves his brothers and sisters. Jesus says, doesn't he, in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Here's my credentials. I know I belong here when I love the brethren. Again, not uniformity, 
but love. Not toleration of sin, but love for one another that would actually, as we read in Galatians 6 this morning, confront sin. But it doesn't go around looking for problems. It goes around looking to pick fights. The only solution to the hatred that is natural in all of us for our fellow man is the love of Jesus in a man. The love of Christ transforms us so that we can love mankind. This is the the absolute absurdity of the world in which we live. Don't we hear it to the point today that it actually doesn't mean anything? Unity, tolerance, love, equality. But without that Jesus character, he's so divisive. No, it's only by Jesus that you have unity, love. And a view of humanity that is equal as being made in the image of God. You can't kick Jesus out and expect there to be brotherly love. And yet that is exactly what the world around us is doing. You cannot achieve it any other way than Jesus changing the heart of sinful mankind. To reject him and then expect that outcome is absolute madness. Love is not born out of emotions. I don't care what Hallmark Channel says. Love is not born out of emotion. Love is born out of spiritual genetics wherein Christ changes our heart. Love cannot be manufactured. Love cannot be taken away. And there's no limit to the brotherly love that Peter has in mind here. They will literally lay down their lives for one another in a very literal way. This is not hyperbole. Peter is dealing with people who would undergo persecution and they would die for Christ and die out of love and unity and care for one another. You know, if you were to get on a plane today and you were to travel and to meet other Christians around the world, there is an instant unity that does not exist in the world. Have you ever experienced that? You meet another believer and there is an instant love. There's an instant closeness with those people. It's so neat when the Lord does that, doesn't he? When unsuspectingly we're at some point in our life and we meet somebody and you're just thinking, there's something different about this person. And the longer you talk, you discover they too are a follower of Christ and there is a love. Why? Your spirit, the spirit in you and the spirit in them are bearing witness to each other. And it's uniting each other in brotherly love. Peter continues, he says there's also to be kind-heartedness or compassion. Peter touches on the deepest seed of human emotion. Compassion from the heart. Yeah, but that compassion stuff, that's kind of of weak. Isn't that kind of a bleeding heart approach to Christianity, Brian? Are you going soft? No. No, because this is the same word that's used to describe Jesus. At moments when he was deeply moved and touched by the condition of people. You'll never be more like Jesus than when you're compassionate. 
Compassion is not needed when things are good as much as it is when there is a great need. You don't need compassion when, hey, you need anything? No, man, we're great. We're in good health. The bank account's full. Got a great job. Family relations are good. Man, life is good. That's not when compassion is needed. Compassion is needed when people are hurting. And we as believers of all people ought to demonstrate compassion, care for their state of a human soul. Do you care like that? I'm going to ask you a really tough question. Might make some of you mad. It's not my goal. But I want to ask you a very serious question. I want to test your mettle. Because I've tested my own. This past week, we've had a very difficult situation arise in our community. We have people from elected officials down who've broken the law of our country. They have. They've come here illegally. They have violated law. Now, do they know they violated law, especially the kids that are now housed in our community? I doubt it. I doubt it. But, Christian, can you, can you feel compassion for those kids? Because they are a soul made in the image of God. And at the same time, feel frustration or even righteous indignation because the law of our land is so subverted by our elected officials? Yeah, I think you can feel both. And I, I would say that as Christians, if we aren't concerned about the souls of those young people in our community and we just lump them in with the problems that were created by our elected officials, then we don't understand what compassion is. There ought to be the ability to think through this. I don't know what the answer is because we can't even get close to it. But what if God sends them here and somewhere along the way, through whatever means God has, they encounter the saving gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what matters. We ought to have compassion. We ought to care about the individual. And no, I don't support open borders. But I'm telling you, there are real people involved. There ought to be a compassionate response even when there is a hard situation. Like I said, compassion's not needed when things are easy or good or it, boy, it fits into nice little compartments and packaging. Compassion is needed when things are hard. And it's hard right now. And as Christians, we have to learn to process and think. The body of Christ ought to be moved in the deepest part of our being for one another and for lost souls outside of this church. And we ought to pray. Let me ask you, have you prayed that God would save those children here in Midland? Have you prayed that God, I don't know, this is such a messy, messed up situation. 
it frustrates me on one level, but on another level, God, would you meet their needs? But more importantly, would you meet their spiritual need? I can't pray that. I'm an American. They broke the law. Well, are you Christian? There's a difference. And we ought to have compassion, tenderness inside, a motivation that Jesus had. Does, it, does the brokenness of other people move you? Does the brokenness of other people in our church, when they're hurting, does it move you? It moved Jesus. In fact, Jesus was so clearly demonstrating this quality. Jesus was so filled with compassion that people who merely touched the hem of His robe caused Him to know there was a problem. Jesus was so compassionate and so moved toward the needs of people that in Luke 8.46, remember the woman just comes, she's just seeking to be healed and changed, and she touches the hem of His robe, and Jesus says, wait, I sense that power has departed from me. Who touched me? There's a Savior who's engaged in compassionate living. His heart was for the people that He came to seek and to save. What a commendation for us. Peter says, then be humble. Be humble in your spirit. At the root of all of these other things is the call and the command to be humble. It is the foundation of all other Christian virtues. It is the foundation of the Christian ethic. Peter's going to go on and write here in just a few verses that God resists the proud. He is opposed. He actively opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. James 1.9, the brother of humble circumstances to glory in his high position. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of the Lord. If you had to characterize your Jesus, how would you characterize Him? It's not so important how we would characterize Him, right? How does the Bible characterize Him? The Bible characterizes Jesus this way. He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's no place for pride, brothers and sisters, in our lives. None whatsoever. And let me just say this, there is no middle ground between pride and humility. You are either sliding into the abyss of pride or you are growing in the grace of humility. One or the other, there is no neutrality. Peter says, always be cultivating a humble heart. Our pride will prevent all the other virtues that Peter has listed that we've spent our time on this morning. Hey, listen, if you are not a humble person, you can't accomplish any of those. You'll never see the fruit of any of those in your life if you are a proud person. And we need to cultivate humility in our own lives by reminding ourselves constantly of not only how Jesus lived, but how He lived in such a way 
towards us. You know, I don't, that person, they're not my, that, that's just not, no. That situation, I just don't do that emotion. I don't do that kind of serve. That's just not me, you know? You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not me. Where's that get out of jail free card on that deal? That's just not me. I prefer. Has it ever dawned on you? Has it ever humbled you? That Jesus demonstrated his love towards you while you were still a rebellious That's when Jesus showed compassion. That's when Jesus showed harmony with His Father's plan. That's when Jesus embodied everything that we have seen here. While you were the most difficult, God-hating, Christ-crucifying sinner on the face of the earth, that's when Jesus engaged these. What's your excuse, Christian? How did Jesus do it? Because He was humble. Remembering who we are, remembering what we are, and remembering when Jesus loved us will do a great service in your thinking. I'm nothing. Christ is everything. If He had not loved me when it was the most impossible to love me, I would not be here. What do you have, Christian, that you haven't been given, as Paul would ask in 1 Corinthians 4-7? For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as as if you had not received it? In other words, done it yourselves. There are none of us here this morning because we thought it was a good idea to be here. Every one of us is here this morning because at some point in the past, God so loved and so moved upon us and in us and awakened us from our spiritually depraved state that He changed us and gave us a new heart and new desires to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, and to be with others who do the same. It is not you. So why would you boast as if it is? And why would you not give back what has been given to you, Peter says, this is instruction in virtue. And then in closing this morning, and my son reminded me. I think it was intentional. He reads the Babylon Bee. And he says, Dad, look at this Babylon Bee. Preacher says, in closing, and then 45 minutes later closes. I promise that's not this. There's the instruction of experience. There's instruction in virtue. And now there's the instruction of experience. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Brothers and sisters, our Christian ethic, the way that we live our lives, in other words, expands beyond simply the virtues of Exemplified in verse 8. In the idyllic situations of our life. No, we need to 
demonstrate those in real experience in all phases of life. Can I just tell you this, Christian? You're going to be treated poorly. Did you hear that? You're going to be treated poorly. Quit expecting to live in a world that does not exist any longer in which we say, I'm a Christian, and they say, oh, that's wonderful. We now live in a day when you say, I'm a Christian, and they say, you bigot. You racist. You hate monger. No. That's not me. I said I'm a Christian. I know what you said. And did you not hear me? Don't expect that you're going to be treated well. You're going to be treated horribly from now on. And if you can't deal with that, you need to talk to Jesus. Why would we be greater than our master? We'll be treated poorly at times by other Christians. Certainly by the world, but sometimes it'll even happen with other Christians. So what do we do? Peter says, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. It's not eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, tit for tat. It is to cultivate the other virtues that he's already mentioned by the power of the gospel, changing us, removing self out of the equation, letting the spirit control our responses. So that we can fulfill Peter's now imperative command. Do not do this. Can I say to you kindly because I love you. That if you do not cultivate those virtues now. You won't be able to keep the command later. Humility. Harmonious living. Kind heartedness. Compassion. Sympathy. If you don't work on those now. When the world comes to slap you in the face. Or when your Christian brother or sister. In a moment of the flesh. Does something to you. You will not respond this way. You'll respond in a way that detracts from the. Glories of Christ. The power of the gospel. You'll be embarrassed. At how you handled it. You'll have to go back and then do. Repair to that relationship. Evil is going to come upon us, brother and sister. And our call is not to return the evil, but instead to give the blessing of life that is steeped in the gospel, the change that Jesus has made. That's what we're to give back. That change. We're to imitate Him. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Jesus not only did not respond physically, Jesus did not even respond verbally. Go, well, we'll have plenty of opportunity, but start ahead. Start reading the trial of Jesus. The things that were said, the things that were done, the implications that were made, and how does Jesus respond? He didn't even open his mouth. As Hebert points out in his commentary, you can smart off, you can sound off, you can respond verbally, you can even respond physically and in other ways, and it won't change the insult. It only exacerbates it. It only makes it worse. John Trapp, who happened to be Charles Spurgeon's favorite 
Puritan writer said this, to render railing for railing is to think to wash off dirt with dirt. How counterintuitive is that? Respond with an insult to an insult, that's like taking a bath in the dirt to get the dirt off. It's just illogical. So what do we do instead? Peter says we're to bless them. We're to bless them. What does blessing in this case look like? We're talking about your enemies. We're talking about the people who imprison men like James Coates. We're talking about the people who are now in the media saying that the tragedies and the senseless murders that happened this week in Atlanta are the fault of Reformed Christians who are associated with Founders Ministry. How do you respond to them? Getting in their face? Punch them in the nose? No. Pray for them. Maybe it's right there on the spot you begin to pray for them. Well, that'll take the wind out of some sails. They're wanting to fight. They're expecting a, a, you know, a retaliation jab or a hook. You fall to your knees and begin to pray. Mm, wasn't expecting that. We show benevolence. We speak well of them when possible. And most astoundingly, we ask God to bless them. That's what the word literally means. To call down blessing. Nothing is more absurd. Nothing is more counterintuitive to our flesh. When it's been provoked, when it's been hit, when it's been assassinated in its character, say, let me pray for you. Let me ask God to bless you. Doesn't mean we ask Him to bless their sin. But we can pray in other ways. Rest assured, resistance to this command from Scripture going the opposite way and responding in the flesh does not come from the Spirit, but from your pride. Obviously, you haven't humbled yourself. How tragic for us. How tragic for them. And here's the part where Peter turns it on its head. Remember, it's not the Christian life that's upside down, but the world that's upside down. Peter says this, For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Can anyone here think of a time when you were hostile to someone? Someone who was perfect, someone who had never done anything to you. Didn't deserve your hostility that you dished back. Didn't deserve your pushback against them, your hatred of them. But instead they blessed you. I can think of one. His name is Jesus Christ. As our Lord hung upon a cross. His response was not God get even. God melt it down. Not to call fire from heaven. Not to call angels from heaven. But simply this. Father. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Did that thief on the cross, did those Roman soldiers deserve that? From a human perspective, no. But from the mission of God 
to seek and save those who are lost? Absolutely. So much so that the response of the Roman centurion, and I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, watch Jesus say that and watch Jesus die. And what was his conclusion? Surely this man was the Son of God. Because he understands humans don't respond like that. Human nature doesn't respond that way. What were the other men on the cross around Jesus doing? They were cursing and reviling and mocking. And he's going, no, that I know. That one man, though, I do not know. Surely he is the Son of God. Christian, do we want people to look at our lives and say, surely they're a Christian. Surely they've received a blessing that I do not have. By his call, for his purposes, we were destined for blessing instead of cursing. By God's sovereign work, God chose us for this, not because we earned it, but out of undeserved mercy and sheer grace, unmerited favor from God, we were given life. So then, how can we not show that to others? Here's where we do buy into prosperity thinking. God ordains the good things in life, but not the bad things. God ordains my good friends, but not those prickly people or my enemies. No, God ordains them too. And you have to respond, just as Peter says. Peter summarizes then on the authority of Scripture. Love this. He quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Oh, that's so hard. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Pretty much everything Peter's already said. And in case you wonder where he got the idea. From Psalm 34. The Holy Spirit inspired both David in Psalm 34 and Peter in 1 Peter 3 to communicate the message that our faith is proved out, it is tested, and comes out as genuine when our fallen hearts and our nature are so transformed that we begin to live in this way. Do you want life? Do you want the proof of life that you've been changed? You'll keep your tongue from evil and speaking deceit. You'll turn away from evil and you'll seek to do good. You, you will be a person characterized by peace and you will do what you can to pursue peace. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, but His face is against those who do evil. It's what James says, what Peter says, what David says. So Christian, has your heart been changed? Professing Christian, has your heart been changed by Jesus Christ? Well, yes, I believe it has, but how would I know, Brian? Because your life will begin to reflect these virtues. It will begin to reflect these responses. Or maybe your pride is bowed to the work of the Holy Spirit. And things that used to set you off don't set you off so much anymore. 
Not that you're perfect, but you see growth. Or maybe it's some of you are here and you say, this is not me at all. It never has been. And I have no desire for it to be. Then you're still resisting Christ. Christ has not changed you. That's the stone cold reality of it all. When Christ changes us, we're not perfect in this, Christian, but we desire this. We want this. And we want to see it grow little by little so that people look at us and say, "Mm, man, I knew them before. And it was going to be a good old-fashioned Donnybrook if that had happened to them before. But something is different. They prayed for that person. They loved that person. Their pride has been subdued. Oh, may it be true of every one of us that the work of the gospel in us is borne out. It's proven true by the fruits of the Spirit, as Larry read for us earlier this morning, worked out in us in these ways. May God help us. May this be true. May the Spirit Make Colonial Bible Church a picture of verses 8 through 12. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing in ourselves to boast. We can bring you nothing but our sin. And yet, when we do, Father, we come and we are confident that Jesus Christ cleanses and forgives and changes. Lord, our spiritual growth is. One, by Christ's work for us. We have the ability through what Christ did for us. But we also have the solemn obligation to conform and to grow and to be intentional about pursuing Christ with His help. And so I pray, Father, that You would do that this morning. Not, don't let it be in our own strength so that pride would then just increase when we think we've done a good job doing this. But Lord, may Your Spirit cause us to grow in such a way that these things become true of us. And whether or not, may we repent of them, may we confess them as sinful, and may we find Your answers, Your power, Your change to be sufficient. And may we begin to live out these virtues. And Father, if there is one here this morning who cannot say this has never been true of my life. They they, they say this has never been true. I can't say these things or my desire, nor have they been a reality. But I want to trust Christ. Father, may your spirit this morning convict them of sin and more importantly, convict them then that Jesus forgives, that Jesus saves, that Jesus changes. I pray that you would give them that confidence, Holy Spirit, to trust Jesus fully. That they might experience the joys of what this kind of life, this final analysis brings forth. We pray this all in your name. Amen.